What's going on, everybody? I'm Will Button. This is the next thrilling, exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. And we've got a full panel in the studio today. Back from his worldwide travels, rock star lifestyle, Jonathan Hall. Hey <laughs> it's a podcast. People can't see the faces that you're making. Oh, and that's such a tragedy. I, 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 I just made the most rock star face you could imagine. Just, you know. That's it. Imagine that, and it was 10 times better. That's it. We're going to YouTube now just to capture that magic. <laughs> and we also have with us Jillian Rowe. Hello. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So today we are going to talk about programming languages. And this actually comes up a lot on my YouTube channel that I run. People interested in DevOps are asking, do I have to learn how to write code? And, and so we're going to talk about the different programming languages that are used in DevOps, the pros and cons of each. And just in our general chat, before I click the record button, it sounds like we have some pretty opinionated thoughts on this subject. So I'm looking forward to this. Awesome. Me too. It'll be fun. <laughs> It'll either be fun or we'll all be canceled by the end of the episode. I kind of think that's like every episode that we do without some adult supervision, just, you know, in general. I know one of these days Chuck's going to come back and he's going to just whip us all into shape. So a few episodes ago, we talked about we talked about Bash. Maybe that's a good place to start. <laughs> that's it. That's what we need. Yeah, because yeah, you need to be learning Bash. I mean, that's kind of like the, the bare minimum you could possibly do and and still call it coding. <laughs> and I think it's a really good starting point, too, if you're coming to DevOps from an IT or sysadmin type background. I think that's a great place to start because it leverages skills that you already know, but then sort of tease you up to see the magic of automating stuff via code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also like very dependent upon the type of people that you're working with. So I've always been in this kind of weird mix where I'm working with sort of half like typical sysadmin IT people and half data scientists. The sysadmin IT people tend not to know how to code so much. And so they really like Bash and the, the Bash testing framework bats and make files and things like this. And then when I'm on the data science side, they like more like Python, Python and Perl. It used to be Perl, but now it's Python. Yeah. 
Bash is this in a, in a weird position that you almost need to know at least a little bit of Bash to do. I would just say to do DevOps, but really to do anything in computers these days, unless you're just a hardcore Windows user, who, you know, it's just a an Excel spreadsheet person. But if you're doing anything in IT, you probably need to know at least a little bit of Bash or PowerShell if you're in window, the Windows world. But they're, they're, they're similar concepts, right? You know, you need to know a little bit of scripting. But then they, it also gets so complicated so fast. It, go, it goes from being super easy, simple for data scientists to understand, and, you know, like a beginner can understand Bash, to... And then it, it jumps like to almost 90 degrees to, to being impossible for anyone to understand when it gets complex. So it's this weird thing that, that is both super simple at the, and annoyingly, absurdly, insanely complex at the same time. <laughs> Agreed. I've had a couple bash scripts that I've had to just stare at for like like a good like hour or two to really understand. And it wasn't long either. It was like, you know, 50, like 100 lines. And I just... I could not make my brain parse what it was doing once you get past a certain point. But I do I do agree with your point, Jonathan. I think like if you're doing pretty much any kind of DevOps and you're probably on the Linux side of things, like I don't I don't know. I don't administer anything on Windows, so you might be on Windows and I just have no idea. But you need to at least know your way around a terminal. You probably need at least like some find and grep and being able to tail log files, I don't know, for loops, XRGs, you know, the kind of basic uh, bash yeah. commands. Exactly. Set variables. That's another one. And and you'll use these things, whether you're actually writing long scripts or not, you'll under, need to understand a lot of this stuff. Like just to, to know how to, to launch a Docker, it's good to understand how, like you said, setting variables works in Bash. So of a fundamental understanding of Bash, I think is essentially required any, for anything related to this field. That doesn't mean you need to become an expert at all, but you, you should have the basics down and know where to look up. When you find something strange, you need to know where to go to look for it and what it means. Man, that's a great point. Man, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's but. really true. Like, say I was, uh, I was trying to do this thing in VS Code where you could clone like a remote repository and it wasn't under my usual GitHub account. It's under like a client's GitLab kind of deal. So it's different. And I try to do it like directly through the VS Code because they have like a button open this in VS Code. And I was like, oh, that's neat. I'll try that. And it didn't work. But then when I went and just did it like on the, you know, on the command line, it worked. So you do need to kind of understand what's happening underneath the hood mm -hmm. and to uh, and to be able to run the commands yourself a lot of times, I think. Yeah, I think one of the other points in favor of learning Bash is a scenario I've encountered several times throughout my career is just understanding what the operating system provides. Because I've been in several situations where I've worked with teams who are trying to reinvent things that are just provided by the operating system. And it, it wasn't for any other reason other than that they weren't familiar with Linux and didn't know that that was a thing. And so you can save yourself some time and effort and leverage the, the work of people for the last couple of decades if you know that those things exist. So when does it, when does Bash, I mean, we already said that it gets complicated quickly. When does it make sense to stop using Bash and use something else? And, and how do you choose that something else? Anything more complicated than a for loop for me is where <laughs> it's like that line that I draw. I'm just, I'm not doing it. Also CLI programs. If I have to write any kind of CLI program, I'm not doing it in Bash. So, you know, you need to have like complicated inputs and outputs. So you have like a CLI program that accepts as its input 
a file and for one file you want for it to check that the path exists and for another and then for the output file you know the path doesn't have to exist but maybe you want to make the parent directory and you have a boolean value and integers and you want all of these things kind of like type checking that's that's where my brain was going with that you guys was type checking so i want to be able to you know enforce something as a string and something else is an integer and something else is a boolean value i don't really know of any way to do that in bash and i know that's like just where I oh, stop because I Trust just can't me. deal with it. I'm sure you can, but do I want to? Bash is Turing complete. You can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't, but you can. doesn't mean I want to, though. No, you, you definitely shouldn't. Yeah, I, I think I think you hit on several really important important points there. Anytime you have complicated types or, or, or type, strict typing is important. Bash is usually the wrong tool. Uh, if you need a, a hash map or, or large arrays of data, Bash is probably the wrong tool. Like you said, if you're doing co- complicated logic, I, I might even go so far as to say if you're doing logic that's more complicated than just a simple template, you know, if you're checking if this and or this, then that, you know, the, the, those you know sort of compound conditional things, Bash, it, it can do it, but it gets really hairy pretty quickly. So it's a good point to, to start considering something else. Yeah, the, one of the things that I use is like the breaking point to say, oh, this probably shouldn't be in Bash is where I'm going to run it. So like once it moves beyond the circle of servers that I'm intimate with and control, I tend to start pulling away from Bash because you end up in scenarios where Bash may not be the default shell. You know, it runs on a system that uses Z shell or something or trying to rely on environment variables. If the script runs in an interactive shell, then it gets access to certain variables. But if it runs without the interactive shell, then it doesn't get other variables. And there's a lot of different weird scenarios that pop up there. And so if I don't have like a parental level of control over those servers, I'll tend to pull back to something besides Bash. Which brings up another point. Sometimes Bash is the best tool for the only reason that it's what can run on all of your targets. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to Um, install anything additional. Yeah, but like if, if you start to try to use Python or Perl or, or, or something like that, which has a whole bunch of runtime dependencies, it can get really hairy. And in fact, you may not even want Bash. You might just want SH, which is a, like a stricter version of Bash, right? Yeah. So sometimes if, if you're doing something that you need it to run, yeah, I don't know, in various places where, where maybe Bash isn't even installed or whatever. And then and then you're in a, a, then it's difficult <laughs> because if you're in a really lightweight environment, you're an Alpine Docker image, for example, you have very little available to you. And that is where you might start looking at something like Go, which I, I, I imagine we're going to talk about in a moment, because Go compiles into a single, usually a static binary, which doesn't have runtime dependencies. That's cool. I, I don't use Go, so I didn't even really know that. That's one of the that's one of the target. I mean, one of the one of the key features I would say of Go. It's not strictly true that you always get a static binary, but the exceptions are when you're linking with C libraries. You can get you can still have a runtime dependency. But if you do if you write something that's written entirely in Go with no C dependencies, the output is a single executable binary that you can run anywhere. Which is why it's so good for tools like Docker and Terraform and Kubernetes uh, services, which is where it's heavily heavily used. Because you get just a single binary distribution and everything is compiled into that binary. Cool. Well, there's a point for using Go then. Yeah, I think that's a good segue to start talking about Go. If you're interested in working heavily in DevOps, I think Go is one of the languages that should be at the top of your list to learn specifically for 
the reasons that you were just mentioning, Jonathan, is a lot of DevOps tools are written in Go. And the fact that anything you write in Go, it's it's easier to distribute. You compile it for that architecture and then just distribute that binary. Yeah. And it's also really fast. I mean, both in terms of compilation time, uh, it, it like it compiles so fast in most cases that you don't even realize it's compiling. Unlike if you're used to doing C++, C++ or something, you sit there for 20 minutes waiting for it to compile. Go is not like that. You know, usually it compiles faster than you realize it was even compiling. So in that sense, it's, it's almost as usable as the scripting language, but it does have to be compiled first. And then, but then, yeah, you, it's, it's really easy. And it's a simple language to, to understand which is one thing I like about it, unlike Bash. <laughs> or, I don't know or if anybody or, or really understands Bash. Python. Like the ends yeah, and the outs. Exactly. <laughs> it's like Bash is like and quantum physics. Too. We have some theories. <laughs> <laughs> and Go executes very quickly too. So if you have anything that, that is CPU intensive or requires a lot of concurrency, those are, the, those are always the things that Go gets the attention for anyway. You know, if you need to... I don't know, download 50,000 files and do something with them. Go is a good choice for that. Not that I do that very often in DevOps work, but sometimes maybe I need to do something like that. So Go is is good for that. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about Go. When I first started using Go, you know, you mentioned how quickly it compiles and I wrote a little, almost like a hello world or something like that and compiled it. And my first thought after running the command was like, well, great. It's broken. That didn't work. There's no way it compiled that fast. <laughs> like, this is stupid. <laughs> but I think Go is relatively easy to learn. You know, for years, I always advocated Python as your first language because Python, I believe, is really easy to use. But I think Go as well is pretty easy to learn as far as programming languages are concerned. Mm-hmm. Is it used a lot in I any think, spaces think, uh, like besides DevOps? You can, I mean, Go is a general purpose language, so it, it can be used for anything. You can use it to write web services or Hugo, the, the static site generator I use on my website. We've talked about it on this channel a few times. It's written in Go. But, it, you know, it, it was invented by initially by Google, although they've they've given given it to the community since then. Um, but it was originally created for the purpose of systems programming, which is things like Kubernetes and Terraform and Docker. And those are probably the most famous large projects that are written in Go. But yeah, you, you can write just about anything you want. The, the play, and you, you can even write mobile apps in Go. There's a, there's a project called Go Mobile, which will let you write Go code that you can then deploy to your Android or iPhone. So yeah, I'm not necessarily advocating that you should use that. It's a kind of a niche project, but it's possible. The point, is, the point is that you can use it for just about anything. Yeah, I think it works great for building backend APIs as well. Yeah. For this, the same reasons that you've already mentioned, you know, it's, it's just fast and it handles concurrency well. So a small Go application can handle a large number of clients, which makes it easier to scale and maintain and support as your, as your customer base grows. Oh, and my favorite feature. Oh, yeah, this one. My favorite feature about Go is the test suite is built into it. It's native to the language. You don't have to go to Google and Stack Overflow and figure out what application you've got to install to write tests, to write your, your, your Go code. It's just yeah. part of the application. Like, we know you're going to write tests, so here, it's built in. Yep. That is cool. And the linters, too. Uh, there's, a, there's several linters that just come with the project directly. There's many more that you can use that are third-party linters. And in fact, I just, I, at the local uh, Go Meetup, last night in Amsterdam, I gave a lightning talk about linting in Go. And so uh, I'll plug the tool. Golang CI lint is the one to use if you're linting your Go program. 
because um, it takes all the official linters and a whole bunch of other ones and just runs them all at once simultaneously in parallel. So, yeah, the, the, the ecosystem for testing and for linting and debugging and, and performance profiling and all those things. If you need to give a memory leak, it, Go gives you tools that make it relatively easy to debug that sort of stuff. So it's a really rich tool set if you're using Go. This episode sponsored by Go. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned Python. I think we should talk about Python and maybe even Perl just for the sake of history. When do you use Python and, and why? And, and when would you choose it over Go? I use Python. I still use it pretty regular. I like it for backend APIs and for like message consumer type tasks. The reason I pick it over Go in the last couple of years is based on you know, as a, as a freelance consultant, I write code, deliver it to the customer, and then I go on to the next client. So I look at their the capabilities of their staff. And a lot of times I'll go with Python over Go just because they have in-house Python skills or they have someone who's got enough technical skills that they'll be able to pick up Python and, and work with it easier or more easily than the similar application in, written in Go. I would tend to agree. I, I don't actually know Python very well. It's something I'm I'm hoping to brush up on soon. But yeah, I mean, it's it's also a general purpose language. And I think if I'm working with a team, I want them to use a tool that they understand or comfortable with. And if they are comfortable with Python, then there's I see no reason not to use Python for the same things that you might use Go for, or even Perl. I mean, I, I guess the same. If you have a team that's comfortable with Perl, why not use it? Perl is great for the sort of stuff that you do in DevOps. It's not very popular anymore, but that's honestly the only thing I would ever use Perl for anymore. It's been used for some really big uh, programs. And I think our guest last week was a big Perl advocate or, or two weeks ago, but yeah. I don't like <laughs> Perl for large applications. But I do like it for, you know, as a, as a better version of Bash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Perl is another one that's installed on uh, all Linux operating systems. So sometimes you get like some little Perl scripts when people don't want to have to require, you know, installing anything else that they'll they'll yeah. just throw Perl in there. Also, Perl saved yeah. the human genome, you guys. So, you know, just a little plug for that. I still like Perl. You know, I still have like a soft spot in my heart for Perl. I don't really program in it anymore because, you know, pretty much everybody's on the Python bandwagon in the, in the data science community. So I use that. And then, yeah, I use Python for the same reasons you guys mentioned. For the most part, the teams that I'm working with they're using Python. I want to be using something they're using. I also don't want to have to remember a lot of stuff. So like if the tools are in Python and I'm coding in Python, that's less stuff that I have to remember. And I think, uh, you know, like the tooling and the ecosystem and all that around Python has really grown and matured over the years. I especially like the, you know, since they introduced types and you can have uh, these kind of, they're like annotations for your IDE. So if you use VS Code, you can import the Python typing package, and then you can say whether or not this should be, you know, a string or an int, or you can make custom types, custom classes, things like that. And then if you try to code something and it isn't conforming to the types that you have set, it will tell you. And I just, I, I really like things like that because I, I really don't want to have to remember stuff. The IDE should be remembering all the things for me. Yeah, I just recently discovered that Python has, has typings and I was like, wow, when did this happen? And it's been around for a couple of years. I just didn't know it. And I, I actually, I liked that. One thing yeah, I think we have to talk about on Python. Too. What's that? Data classes. Like it's just, it's like a shorthand syntax for declaring a class instead of the, the Python, like, you know, class and it, you know, like all the kind of things that you used to have to have. Now it's just, um, it's a bit shorter. Right on. Yeah. 
I think we have to talk about Python 2 and Python 3 if we're going to talk about yeah. Python. I mean, it's been... Do we really want to? We, <laughs> we have so to. Years. Yeah, Python 3 has been out for over 10 years, and we still are struggling to get away from Python 2, which I don't know. I don't know the reasons behind that other than updating legacy code is something no one wants to do, I think, as part of that. But um, so, if, so they made the decision that Python 3 would not be backward compatible with Python 2 in some very specific ways. Right. Like, like, like most, like, <laughs> like 99% of the language is is compatible. Yeah. Except for print. But 0% of Except for print. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just never get over that. That like, let's, let's introduce a whole bunch of backwards incompatibility so that we can have parentheses in our print statement. I know. It's so. like, really? This is the hill <laughs> you want to die on? <laughs> I guess so. That is the hill that they wanted to die on. Yeah. And it yeah. never won't stop being funny to me. Yeah. But I, I think the, the key point I want to stress there is if you are going to learn Python, make specific efforts in your research in whatever format you're going to learn it in to make sure that you're learning Python 3 and not Python 2, because there's still a lot of Python 2 literature and, and documentation and tutorials out there. But that's not really where you want to spend your your precious time learning. Nope. If I, if I recall, Python 2 was finally completely end of life recently. Is, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, it's not longer ago than recently, like even like a few years, didn't it reach? It was January first, twenty twenty. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, Python two is is officially dead. There's right. still a lot of code out there running in Python two. Usually scripts that uh, that haven't been updated or or haven't been rewritten at least since well the last decade. But if you're writing new stuff, definitely use Python three. And but be aware that Python two exists and will confuse you sometimes. Yeah, and on that note. Take the time to check which version, because a lot of systems that I still encounter, if you just run the command Python, it still points to Python 2. So do Python-V, see which one it points to. And I'm just in the habit of typing, every time I want to type Python, I just type Python 3, because that will pick up the symlink. And PIP3. Yeah, PIP3 also, (laughs) because you'll end up with some really strange errors. If you run the pip2 in a Python 3 environment. to install packages for Python, right? Yep. Yeah. For those who aren't familiar. Yeah. Okay. So I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, when I talk to you, I mean, I really feel the developer vibe, and I know that's your background. But is Mm -hmm. is all of Raygun that way? I mean, you know, it just kind of feels like when I talk to other companies, they're a little more corporate, a little more you know, focused on maybe, you know, raising money or doing other things, you know. But it seems like when I talk to you, you're just you know, down-to-earth developer dude. I like to think of myself as a down-to-earth developer dude. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Ray, Raygun is a little bit different. Um, so, you know, we're not heavily VC-backed. Um, you know, my business partner and I, when we started, we were both nerds, you know. Um, I, I might be the CEO today and I don't write code on the product. Um, but, you know, the joke internally is, you know, what's the definition of technical debt, Chuck? It's CEO code. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff to go fix. Um, (laughs) But uh, no, we're we're, Uh, we're, stories. 
<laughs> we're a cash flow positive business. You know, we're not heavily VC funded. Um, you know, but we 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 are at a size now where we're we are expanding, and more and more folks are are discovering what we're about. But yeah, we often look through things through that lens of a developer. You know, I wanted a thirty thousand foot view, but I also want to go right down to an individual um, data point. Um, similarly, you know, I don't believe in averages. I want medians. I want P ninety nines. I I make better decisions that way, and so we try and drive that sort of thinking into our products and try and be as developer uh, minded as we possibly can be. Yeah, I love that because, you know, for me, it's it's run by people who get me um, and you're not under pressure from like a VC to raise your prices or, you know, go hyper grow and then, oh, crap, now we're behind the eight ball with our money and now we've got to figure it out. You know, you're just going to keep growing, steadily moving. and, And I just love that. Yeah, I mean, the term these days is often referred to as product-led growth, right? Like, get people use the product mm-hmm. and say, hey, that's great. I want to give you money. Um, I don't think it's that complicated. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, folks, if you want to go check it out, you can go find them at raygun.com. Uh, you can actually sign up for a free trial right there on the website. So, is there an elephant in the room we should talk about? I want to complain about Python package managers for a minute. So, we briefly <laughs> brought up Pip. <laughs> Um, So there's PIP, there's Poetry, there's Conda. They all have solved different problems while creating more different problems. And it's still something that's not very well sorted out. I think I still think Conda does the best job of that. And like, yeah, I'm notably biased about the Conda thing. You know, that's fine because it's it's the one that's used mostly in the data science ecosystem. But it's still it's still not. It's not great, guys. It's not great. So in terms of like just getting up and started with the language, I think Python can be really tricky for new users just because like that initial hurdle of getting started and getting set up with an environment that they can actually use and like pip install as a user versus pip install to the system and virtual environments and all that kind of thing is a pretty big hurdle. So if you are kind of new to all this and you're like, okay, you know, I want to learn some programming and I'm going to pick up Python, definitely pay attention to that. I don't really know that I have especially good advice because yeah, I think anything I say is going to be too general, but Python 3, pip 3, and let's say virtual environment so that you know like where you're installing your packages and you're like just be aware that there's different places that you can install packages and it can get kind of confusing unless you're very explicitly telling it to install to a virtual environment that's what i have to say about python that's one that's one thing i like about go is that you don't have these packaging nightmares <laughs> that's also built into the language essentially no no we're done talking about go Moving on. All right. Do you prefer NPM or Yarn? None of them. Why is JavaScript still a thing? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of bitter about this, but like, I just, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I love like all the shiny web stuff that's out there, but like, how are you guys doing this? Do you have just like a lot more energy? Are you really caffeinated? Are there drugs involved? Like, how are people keeping up with web development? Because I just can't can't do it and why are all the devops like cdks this is what we were complaining or this is what i was complaining about specifically before the show so now you're seeing this thing where like it doesn't really matter that much which programming language you pick because all these all these libraries are being sort of like cross generated i suppose are getting their client libraries cross generated for every different programming language and i've noticed in particular there's a lot of like Python and like TypeScript, JavaScript. And why why are we doing DevOps and JavaScript? Like that doesn't even make any sense. It runs on a browser. Why are we 
bringing it to servers and whatnot. Does somebody want to talk me off that cliff? Well, you had you had a good answer for that earlier. I, I have a theory, and for the record, I agree with you a hundred percent. I don't like JavaScript in DevOps or on the back end for API servers and stuff. But my theory on why it's so popular is that's what the customers want because I think a lot of developers got their start in web development so they know JavaScript and they're familiar with it. And then they ended up doing something DevOps oriented or backend API related. And so they they picked up the tool that they knew, which was JavaScript. And I don't know that that's a good answer or the right answer, but that's my theory on it. So if I can simplify a little bit, your theory is that it's a cargo cult. Which I think we see over and over again. And, and, and I'm not going to, I don't want to piss off anybody who really likes JavaScript and listens to this show. But, you know, I, I do see that pattern a lot in tech. You, Ruby on Rails got popular. So then every language started having a Rails clone. Right. And whether it needed it or not, it probably didn't. I don't think Ruby needed it either. I, I think Rails is one of the worst things that's happened to the industry. <laughs> Um, All right. See, now that's that's what's going to get us blacklisted, John. <laughs> I think I think that might. All be opinions it. are my own. Do not do not necessarily <laughs> reflect the that of DevOps. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, so uh, you know, on the one hand, I mean, we know why JavaScript is popular. It's because it's the only language really supported in the browser. Right. And then if. If you're looking at that situation and you're thinking, well, it's just a few tweaks. I could run this on the back end too. Why wouldn't you? I mean, that's it, it's a pretty it's a pretty small jump to go from running no, JavaScript in the front end to inventing Node.js. It's it, what I mean. It wasn't a big technological feat. Basically, added a few APIs to talk to the file system and and a few little tricks and and cool. Now you can run this code locally too, which honestly is truly amazing, especially for things like unit testing. And stuff like that. So it's really good that Node.js exists for that purpose, if if nothing else. But I do agree with both of you that taking it, it's taking it too far if you are now running Node.js for all of your backend and DevOps scripting needs. <laughs> yeah, and I and, and people that I've talked to, like the argument is, well, we already know JavaScript and it's just easier. And my counterpoint to that is JavaScript, but it's not like you're not already using other languages because you write in JavaScript and you use CSS and you write in HTML and you write SQL co- code for your database queries. So, and, and there's just as many people out there who have learned PHP and JavaScript or Ruby yeah. and JavaScript or Perl CGI and JavaScript or whatever. And you know, those people aren't like behind the people who are doing full stack JavaScript in terms of their, their competence or their, or their, they're technical. In fact, they're probably ahead because they have learned two ways to think about the same sorts of problems and, and they can start to do pattern matching in a little bit more sophisticated way than if you only know one language. And you don't spend hours debugging an application because you forgot to async await. Right. So aside from the history and our personal opinions on JavaScript in the back end, are there practical reasons not to use JavaScript in the back end or for DevOps stuff? What do you guys think? I don't think so. No, I was just I was just really surprised when I saw it because I always thought of JavaScript as specifically like a web thing and specifically like a, a web browser thing. Like I know Node.js exists and that it's there, but it's just not kind of my mental model of how I really think of javascript so i was just very very surprised to see that and i was wondering like why just why Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you are. If you do, for the ages. if that is your tool of choice, you are going to have to install a version of Node.js everywhere that you want to run that, which that's one of the advantages of using Python or Perl or Go, mm-hmm. is that you can leverage this the capabilities on the system, no matter which system it is. Right. I do really I like my... the idea of TypeScript, though. So I think TypeScript was the first, like, dynamically typed language that I used. Because I do, like, occasionally, I don't know, I don't really want to say I do web development, but I will occasionally, like, throw some interfaces and stuff up for clients. For, you know, like, people that they need, like, I want to click this button and then that button. Kind of, like, very simple things. Okay, you guys, very, very simple things. Uh, and then I had to sort of learn at least like a little bit of JavaScript, you know, to make it like, oh, when you click on a button, like it pops up, you know, like that kind of stuff. And that was when I found out about TypeScript. And I do really like that. Like it does give you really, really nice um, annotations and kind of like this code inspection and all that kind of thing that you get right in the IDE. And I do find that it's, you know, it's pretty easy to get into a TypeScript project as well even if you're not familiar with the code base because of all those type annotations like as soon as you start typing absolutely anything it will pop up with this you know like big autocomplete list and i'm wondering if and i kind of think that's where the the typing in python the push for typing in python came from is that you know people who are doing javascript came over to python and were like you know where are my types it's like i'm i'm coding blind over here so Maybe that's, you know, that's where that came from is that people just really liked the the TypeScript and the annotations and the kind of quality that you get to your work when you are adhering to types without having to use something like Java or C++. I think the main reason I don't like Node.js for DevOps type of work is because the structure of the scripts is not as it's not as intuitive to to me. Now, I, I guess if you're coming, if you've been using Node.js already for for years and you and you completely understand and are comfortable with that, that won't apply to you. But uh, like like Python or Go, you just kind of follow the script from top, from top to bottom. Right. That's not generally how you read JavaScript code. Uh, I mean, you can write partisans of JavaScript code in that way, but you know, you have your classes and, and maybe you use classes, maybe you don't, but you have different ways of, of organizing your code. And if you have multiple files, then you have to do these imports that, that uh, and you have to, you have to understand the order in which things are executed. You know, it's not, it's not nearly as, as straightforward as a, a, a typical scripting language. So that, that would be one reason that I would, I would not encourage you to learn Node or JavaScript for the purpose of DevOps uh, for automation. If you already know it and you're already comfortable, maybe that's not a, not an issue. But I, if you're looking for something to learn, don't start there. I think I'm going to disagree with you on that one, though, because that goes back to kind of my earlier advice where, say, you're working with a team. It's a web development team. They're all working in JavaScript and you have these DevOps tools. You know, you're using the AWS CDK and TypeScript and then they're actually going to be able to kind of understand what you're doing. Maybe that is a better option for you. But can't you can't. use the Python CDK too? I mean, I you mean, could. If, but if, nobody if you have a CDK on the team that's only Python. available in Node, then sure, then that's your choice. But no, that's your option. But no, I mean, I guess it's just you know, it's a decision I mean, to be made. But I would argue if the whole, yeah. if you're on a team and everybody is using a certain language and you have the choice sure. in your tools to use that language, that you too should be using that language. As much as it pains me Fair to say enough. that, because I really don't. Yeah, I really I mean, don't if, know how if I you're feel an, about entirely that. a Node.js or JavaScript shop and and you're the only one who would be using Python, that might be a reason not to. Yeah, but it, it, I, I, I wouldn't just like in a vacuum choose Node over Python or Go for something like this. I would, I would only do it if I had a strong, compelling reason. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that JavaScript. one. Don't, uh, don't just pick it for the hell of it. 
Are there any others that we should be considering? Lua, Rust, Haskell, Julia, C Sharp. No, I, I don't know. I never caught on to any of those. I don't those. think so. Yeah, I'm not really aware of any if mainstream if applications. Shop, you'll doing, be doing PowerShell instead of Bash, but that's the only like diversions I can think of. Yeah, and yeah. I don't really know how DevOps works in a Windows environment anyway. Yeah, yeah. Me neither. And these days, as with Azure and everything, you know, it's it's half Linux anyway, even if you're doing Windows. So yeah, so it's it's been years since I've touched in depth a Windows environment, but just the the whole thought, my initial thought process of DevOps in Windows goes back to joining machines to the domain and Active Directory management. And I just don't see how that scales into a DevOps environment. But that that's entirely based on my lack of knowledge about what Windows has done as an operating system in the past 15 years, I think, since I last worked with it. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't used a Windows computer in like 10 years. And then my oldest kind of inherited a Windows computer, which was very, very nice of the relative who gave it to her, except that I have no idea how to use a Windows computer. And every time she opened it up, there was like, you know, it would like do like these updates and then it would have... It would have stuff happening. And then, so that was the only reason why I learned any Windows. And then luckily I had an old MacBook that I gave her instead. <laughs> well, so that I wouldn't have to use Windows. So you mentioned Rust. And I keep hearing it come up more and more frequently. And it seems to be gaining popularity. I know one of the strong use cases for it is creating WASM applications for the browser to replace JavaScript. But I'm, I'm not aware of, I'm not really familiar with it at all or aware if it has any DevOps specific use cases. I think it's one of its strongest um, benefits is it's, it has a really uh, tight memory model. So you, you can basically never corrupt memory, which is useful for certain types of services. But I don't think it lends itself to the types of DevOps stuff we're talking about, you know, script automation and stuff. That's not to say you couldn't do it. I'm sure you can. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not where it shines the, the, the brightest. And I think for DevOps, you kind of need a more like general purpose language. That's where, um, you know, like Perl and Python both kind of really shine. They can do all these other mm -hmm. things, right? They can do web development or Python can do all the data science. But at the end of the day, they both started off as kind of general purpose, you know, languages and they have like the, you know, like a lot of the operating, not operating system libraries, but, you know, so in Python, you can do like import OS and then you can do like a lot of the kind of same stuff that you would do just on the command line, except just have it in a bit of a nice wrapper. And it's maybe um, like compliant to different kinds of file systems and things like that. Whereas with something like like Rust, the only thing I know Rust that's used for is uh, it's used a lot in algorithm development because it's very fast. But I don't think it's a like a general purpose language. It might be worth also mentioning, uh, you know, if, if you're a Ruby shop or a PHP shop, should you consider using those languages in DevOps or should you just like you would if you're Are there? potentially if you would if you're a if you're a Node.js shop or should you use something else? Because I'm there sure any, that like, both besides Ruby Puppet? And Sorry? Are there are there any though like besides Puppet for Ruby? Like are there any DevOps tools in PHP or uh, Ruby? I, mean, I don't know either. If you mean like SDKs, I, I don't know. I imagine there are for, I mean, I imagine it depends on which which uh, SDK you're looking for, but I'm sure there are SDKs for, probably more likely for Ruby than PHP. But both of those are, technically speaking, general purpose languages. <laughs> and you can do general scripting in both of those languages. Not that I would really want to, especially in PHP, but it can be done. I don't think I knew PHP was a general scripting language. I thought it was only something that like run, well, it doesn't like run in a browser because it's, it's server side, but it's still mm -hmm. web it's still webby. Yeah. 
It's Webby. It's Webby. Well, I, I think my advice, uh, personally, and either of you are welcome to disagree or, or, or offer your own uh, nuance. My, my advice would be only use Ruby or PHP for DevOps if you're in a, in a company that's strictly only using those, uh, which is going to be really rare because if you're using Ruby or PHP, you're probably also using JavaScript. So I would probably choose Node.js over PHP or Ruby for DevOps. Uh, so yeah, I, pro- I probably would just kind of rule those out, but um, maybe there's a maybe there's some reason I'm not aware of that you would want to use one of those. Yeah, yeah there I could be a whole that. hidden community focused on that. Mm, yeah, I bet there's always like all kinds of weird cults and people, people <laughs> hanging out too long in their basements programming. The word is community, Jillian, not <laughs> cult. <laughs> oh, you know, it's such it's such like a fine line over here. <laughs> I wanted to go back real quick to the point that we were making about testing and just say whichever language you choose to learn, learn how to write tests in that language. It is it is a really useful and really, really helpful skill. So when I like when I write DevOps tests, I'm not or tests like for the different DevOps projects that I have. It doesn't tend to be that I'm writing these like specific tests, like like DevOps tests or anything like that. It really tends to be I'm just doing these making very simple, like assert this is true like like render out this template because a lot of DevOps we all know is rendering out templates and then actually check to make sure that like, okay, if I think it, you know, when I add in this value, it should render like this, like actually check that these things are true. That is really, really helpful and something that I think gets an awful lot of mileage. Whatever yep. whatever programming language you pick, just learn a testing framework and have at it. Agreed. What's your favorite bash testing framework? Bats. Yeah. And it's still a pain. It is such a pain. I know, but I'm so but glad it exists. It's better than nothing, right? Yes, and, and only. <laughs> and if nothing else will motivate you to learn a different programming language, that will. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, but it's still it's still really used like a lot. Like whenever I'm talking to, uh, you know, like the more like typical like IT people, and I, I always try to tell them I'm like, you know, like if you're learning this, I'm sure that you could learn the basics of, you know, like Python or you know, like Ruby or something. At least like just to write your tests. Because this is this just looks so so painful to me, and they but no, they hold on to that like for dear life. No, they are using bats for their test, and they are not they are not learning to code, and that's that. So I don't know. Power to you guys that do that. Stick to your convictions. So we haven't talked about Java. It's true. I I almost never think about Java in this context because it's it feels heavyweight. Like who wants to launch a JVM to to run some automation? But then a lot I guess of the AWS Jenkins, stuff under the so, hood is Java, right? Probably. A lot of everything is under the hood is Java. Yeah. I mean, Jenkins is written in Java, right? So, I mean, yeah. I don't know how many of us use Jenkins, but it's it's certainly a lot of people do. But I, I wouldn't use it for, like, scripting. It seems like a really verbose, roundabout way to, to copy files. <laughs> Yeah, and especially now that you can uh, add types and stuff to Python. Like, that was always the thing that I heard about from Java programmers was like, but we need types, and then you get, like, the annotations in your IDE, which I actually, like, I kind of get that as an argument. But but now that you have types in, like, other languages, I don't know if other languages besides Python have adopted them or not. I just see no reason for me to ever code. Hmm? Go is strictly typed. But it's strictly typed, right? Not not dynamically typed. So Python is like dynamically typed. You could have it's the variable. Halfway both. Like you could have untyped constants and stuff, but that's for the that's for the Adventures in Go podcast. <laughs> <laughs> is there an Adventures Adventures in Go podcast? Do you need to I don't start think one? There is. Maybe we need to start one. Uh, you can start one and I'll just show up and ask the stupid questions one day. Get those out of the system. Alrighty then. Sounds like we're done. Yeah. Yeah. If 
final recommendations? Somebody wanting to learn a programming language? Jillian, what's your recommendation? Whatever the people on your team are using or Python. Jonathan? Whatever the people on your team are using or Python or Go. Yeah, it's a toss up there. I'm going to actually reverse it. I'm going to say Go unless you have to use whatever the, mm. the thing that your people are using. I would, I would advocate or lobby for Go first. And then in the face of compelling evidence or resistance, default to whatever the team's using. All right, I'm, I'm going to change my answer a little bit. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to still do the toss up between Go and Python, but I'm going to say do that first, and then if you if you have a compelling reason, follow your team. And, and the reason I I'm a, it's a toss up between Go and Python is because they serve slightly different purposes, and it depends on where you're focused. So I, I don't yeah. want to I don't want to tell somebody use Go, and then you know, actually Python would have been better for for half of the audience. So it really depends. Final answer. Final answer. It depends. <laughs> Final answer. Wait, no, right. <laughs> Sweet. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Well, let's do some picks then. Jillian, what do you got for picks? I don't have anything. Can I go last? Oh, geez. I don't, I don't know. I really didn't think of anything. I've got some. I can go first. Okay, All right. Thank you. Enlighten us. So I'm reading a book that's it, it's not going to apply to most of our audience, but I think it's a great book. So I'm going to mention it anyway. It's called Obviously Awesome by April Dunford. It's uh, The subtitle is How to Nail Product Positioning So Customers Get It, Buy It, and Love It. So if you are self-employed or you're trying to go into consulting or you're a product based business and you need to mark you need to, to position your product or your services this book is for you a little more relevant to our general audience I want to I want to pick a website it's called neverworkintheory.org and it is basically a uh, a blog of scientific research about software development so and, and I've actually I, I've, I've used a RSS aggregator to 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 look at the basically it, it pings their website once a day and if something changes it sends me an rss uh, update of it or whatever right so i can get it in my rss reader so what maybe once every week or sometimes two or three times a week i get an email from them about some new study that's been done about the benefits of say, say what, what what percentage of bugs does a lender catch on a javascript project or i, I should just instead of just making up this stuff i could look at actually the website here uh, <laughs> database access performance anti-patterns in database backend web applications so somebody somebody did a study about this and identified several anti-patterns that made database performance slow so it, it, this isn't just people's random opinions about here's how you should write better python or whatever these are studies these are academic studies that have been published uh, as far as i know they're all published and peer reviewed maybe not all but but that's the general idea so these are studies about software development. Also, they are doing a live event on April 27. And uh, you have to pay for it, but it's virtual. And it's only 50 Canadian dollars, which aren't even real dollars. So you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to any Canadians. Listening. <laughs> you have 
Canadian bacon is not real bacon either. (laughs) (laughs) Canadian bacon is awesome. I didn't say it wasn't awesome. I just said it wasn't. So anyway, it's really it's it's really it's really uh, affordable for most. Oh, and actually, it's not even fifty Canadian dollars. If you can't afford that, there's a twenty Canadian dollar option also. If you're in a less affluent country, so if you're someplace where fifty Canadian dollars is too much, you can pay the twenty Canadian dollar price. So. There's no reason not to attend this live event. Go to neverworkintheory.org. The information about it is up on the website. You can also read their fun scientific papers about software development. Nice. All right. So on the subject that we've been talking about, my pick is actually relevant. I'm going to pick John Bodner's book, Learning Go, from O'Reilly Press, An Idiomatic Approach to Real-World Go Programming. I I read through that and actually found it very helpful for learning and understanding Go. And he provides a lot of context in there that you may not discover until you do things the wrong way. And so I really appreciated that fact of the book. And then just because I haven't picked it in a while, I don't think I'm going to pick a YouTube channel that really has great DevOps content, DevOps for developers. So be sure to check that out. <laughs> I feel like I've heard of this one before. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really popular. Yeah, I should. I should. Plug, I should, I should plug my brand new YouTube channel too. Yeah, you should. Of course you should. I just started. I just started a brand new YouTube channel called Boldly Go, and it's it's all about Go. So it's actually relevant to this today's topic. It has two videos right now. One is an April Fool's joke, and the other one is not. But I'll be putting more content on there soon. So should have been plugging that all during the show. Yeah. yeah, just for full disclaimer, like for anyone who hasn't listen to very many episodes devops for developers is actually my youtube channel so oh that's where i've heard of it yeah i'd feel really bad if somebody went to it and like wait a minute (laughs) (laughs) that dude runs this channel oh it. it's a great channel (laughs) thanks jillian what other picks have you got for us what now? Oh, yeah. So besides DevOps for developers, which is uh, you know, the, obvious, <laughs> the obvious pick of the show, I just had to go and search through my Kindle history real quick because I was like, oh, no, what am I going to pick? And I, I found one, you guys. I found one. Besides the abundant amount of trashy romance novels that BookBub has been sending my way <laughs> at like a serious discount. <laughs> I also read a real book. It is called uh, The Seven... Seven basic plots. Is it? Yeah, the seven basic plots. That's why it is. That's what it is. The it's like the why of why we tell stories and this and that. And it's just it's a very like interesting read because if you've ever studied different kinds of like mythology from different places, you'll see that there's a lot of commonality. And I always kind of ask myself, like, you know, like once once I learned about these different mythologies, anyways, why is that? And the answer is because there seems to be just something very like inherently human where we all have this sort of you know base existence and we're trying to communicate to each other and these seven basic plots as they're called in the book come up over and over and over again so it's just it's a really interesting read it brings together you know kind of like mythology and religion and human psychology in kind of this very interesting way but also like a very human way like some of these things that i pick you know, about finding fossils and whatnot. My, you know, some of them are like a little bit dry, but this one is is very much about kind of the experience of being human and what that means, which I like sometimes too. Right on. That's it. That's the book, uh, Seven Basic Plots. None of which we have ever, ever used on Adventures in DevOps. We have no plot here. Right. <laughs> no. No, like we, we lost the plot a real long time ago. I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. Well, there you go. On that note, thank you for listening and, uh, 
we'll see y'all next week. Cheers. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.